0: From 11FS, this is InsureTech Insider News. Today we bring you Aviva's Amanda Blank calls out industry sexism, Level and Human partner to offer tailored EV insurance, and our fun part of the call, 1952 insurance policies from when the Queen came to the throne to continue our Jubilee celebrations. All of this and more on today's show. Hello, and welcome to InsureTech Insider, episode 119. I'm John Bean. Today's show is a new show where we will be talking about the most interesting happenings in insurance and tech from the past few weeks. Joining me today, as always, is my co-host, Nigel Walsh, Managing Director of Insurance Google. How are you today, Nigel?
1: I am fantabitozy and delighted to be back. I think I had a week off. It feels like I had a week off.
0: Uh, I think we all almost had a week off with the, uh, with the four-day <laughs> weekend. Thank you, Queenie. We're also accompanied by some amazing guests. First up, we have Mark Mousson, CEO of Human. How are you doing today, Mark? Um, great, thank you, John. Uh, as I said, almost peaking earlier. Peaking earlier. Well, we'll get onto your news in a little while, and some exciting news we have. We're also joined by Charlotte Holket, Chief Underwriting Officer of Many Pets. Thanks for being here, Charlotte. Can you give our listeners the lowdown on Many Pets, please?
2: Sure. Uh, fantastic to be here. Really nice. This is my second time on, so I uh, obviously enjoyed it so much I'd come back again. I'm from Many Pets. Uh, we were known as Bought by Many in the UK. Uh, now we have Many Pets everywhere. We're here to make the world a better place for pets and their parents. We look after, very proudly look after nearly 600,000 pets in the UK, Sweden and the USA now. Uh, we're very fast growth um, over the last five years and we became an InsurTech unicorn in 2021.
0: Many congratulations and fantastic news on the rebrand. And last but not least, we have Sean Millie, founder of Bright Blue Hair and co-founder of Delegated Authority Specialists, Green Kite Associates. That's rolls off the tongue. Welcome back, Sean. Can you give our listeners a little recap about what you do, please?
3: Yes. Sorry. Although I like to uh, think I'm a bit of a rule breaker, John, when someone asks me what my job roles are, I, I, I'm afraid I did write it all down. Sorry for the mouthful there. Yeah. Hello, everyone. Um, yes. So obsessed with insurance and financial services and how we make better and new things using technologies like AI and well I should say the range of technologies before Nigel corrects me um, labeled AI and uh, data and culture Uh, particularly interested in those massive themes that are changing what we do and how we grow new and established firms including fintech for good ESG and um, AI technologies that help the kind of data driven product development that Mark is going to be um, talking about and indeed Charlotte's been involved with forever right Charlotte so hi everyone really nice to be back
0: Great to have you on the show. And thank you all for joining me. So let's get on with it. So our first headline, and quite a big one, Aviva CEO condemns the industry sexism, says it's becoming more overt. The CEO of insurance company Aviva has spoken out about sexism in the financial services industry. In a post to LinkedIn on the 11th of May, Amanda Blank said she's picked up her fair share of misogynistic scars after several sexist remarks were leveled at her during Aviva's annual general meeting. One shareholder said blank, the first woman to become chief executive at the company when appointed in July 2020, was not the man for the job. Another commented on the board's gender diversity, they are so good at basic housekeeping activities, I'm sure this will be reflected in the direction of the board in the future. Blank wrote, in all honesty, after 30 plus years in financial services, I'm pretty used to sexist and derogatory comments like those in the AGM. Quite shocking, really. I guess the first question, I'll fire this one over to you, Sean, is how surprising were these AGM comments?
3: I think the really sad thing is that it wasn't surprising, but that should never, ever stop us being shocked. That's the difference. AGMs are are, are notorious, aren't they, for for, uh, unleashing. It's almost like social media where people almost seem to think that because they're in a room, what they say isn't going to go out of the room. So, yeah, I mean, knowing Amanda a little bit, Personally, but also professionally, given that she's you know a huge part of insurance and has been ever since I became obsessed with it in two thousand and eight, I don't think I can imagine anyone actually saying that to her face if they knew her. But you know, if if someone like Amanda and with the track record, everything that she's doing at Aviva at the moment, and with her team, um, the the change agenda they're prosecuting. If, she, if she's getting it, that tells you about how in, embedded and ingrained and ubiquitous it is. And, of course, can you imagine any of the very many male CEOs, group CEOs of Aviva, having anybody standing up and attacking them on the base of their gender? Attacking them on other areas, right, but on the basis of their agenda. Um, you know, we can see what people think. That has a value. But, yeah, I mean – kind of it's shocking that I'm not surprised, but I remain shocked. I think it's important to remain shocked and, and to articulate that being shocked as well. It's not good enough, is it?
0: It's not. And and the chair, George Colmer, hit out saying, I mean, he was flabbergasted and it was simply inappropriate and shouldn't happen or be repeated in the future. I mean, Nigel, do you think this is something that is unique just to this AGM or do you think this is, you know, a longer standing prevalent issue maybe within the finance sector or in insurance in particular?
1: I think back to Sean's point, there's a whole host of things that go on at AGMs, whether people have bought shares to be disruptive in AGMs or otherwise, to make their point heard. I I think you almost, I'm not sure we can, but you almost separate out the, the issue of the AGM to the gender of the executive to the um, what was actually being said. And Amanda was absolutely right in saying, you know, you can prepare for everything, but not always everything. And, and this was one of them. The, the people that made the comments, the, the two male individuals, I think I have a history in this as well. So it's kind of uh, this form here, doesn't make it right by any stretch of the imagination. But I also read these stories and I and I actually wonder, I think the comment was made a minute ago about social media. I, I wonder whether social media it seems to have made everyone very, very brave. You made the comment a minute ago about not saying these things face to face, but the things people say to you online, on social, whether it's Twitter or Facebook, or even some of the parents groups that you see, they're just horrendous. And you can't imagine walking up to someone in a local coffee shop in your local village or, or city and saying some of the things that people say, they're rude, they're disrespectful, they're hurtful, um, they're unnecessary. And with all the movement around be kind and, and, and everything else, I just think it's, I don't know, maybe the pandemic's turned us all either direct or desensitised us in many ways, um, which doesn't take away from this issue whatsoever, because frankly, what's happened here, and and to Amanda's point, this has been going on for 25, 30 plus years, um, will continue to go on unless we start to put a stop to it.
0: It's actually a really interesting point with the social media, because I do think it makes people braver, but you're right. I mean, I'm not sure what they were hoping to gain with those remarks, because I can't see there being a large upswelling of support for those type of comments. I mean, Charlotte, as a, as somebody who's a chief underwriting officer, have you been subject to any of these kind of remarks within your years within the industry?
2: Of course I have. I think that's, um, I I see Sean laughing here, but it's, I mean, the sad thing is it's so unshocking if you're a woman in the industry. It's, um, it's, re- it's really hard because I'm I'm incredibly positive. Our industry is full of fantastic, bright, brilliant people. And it's very interesting with comments like this and, and with the, the Me Too movement that happened as well. I think the one group that is really shocked is the kind of really decent man who's out there, who's kind of turned around and gone, what the hell is <laughs> this? Isn't, this isn't right. This isn't what I'd say. This is so far outside the guardrails. But it's unfortunately just... Standard. I mean, I'm not saying it's standard that someone as amazing as Amanda Blanc is uh, having to put up with that in front of an audience. I mean, that's off the scale. But at the same time, there is absolutely a certain minority who has this as part of their fundamental thinking. And that's that's really hard. It's... I mean, women are half the population of the world. I mean, we're not talking about minorities here. I mean, I can entirely talk about that as well and how, you know, intersectionality means that certain segments of the society have multiple layers to control with. But women are half the population of the world. I mean, it's not like you're talking about somebody that everybody doesn't know. But this, this is not... Unusual or rare, or something that can be thought of as other. And the one thing that really will stand up, and this goes for every form of really unfair, um, really unfair situation like this, is that it is the good person who stands up and defends um, against that the the ally that actually makes the really big difference so i'm so pleased that the, you know the chair in that situation stood up and went this is unacceptable because as powerful and strong and great as amanda is if she'd done that she would have been judged differently by those people so you need allies you need allies to stand up of which there are loads and i know there are to say you know what over the line not okay you can uh, attack the issues you can debate the issues but this isn't the issue. This is just really unacceptable. So, um, you know, that I think it is, therefore there's some something really sad and really good about this story at the same time because of that. I think the reaction to it as well on on social media also shows, like I say, I'm, you know, hugely optimistic. I think the vast majority of people are, are really great and are allies. So we just need to be a bit, we just need to be loud. We just need to be loud about it. And I, I think of that all the time. If I see uh, another minority being attacked Whether they're there or not, Um, it's really important to stand up. And, you know, even if it's a friend of yours, even if it's a colleague, say, you know what, it's not okay. I know, you know, I know this might be a little bit uncomfortable that I'm saying this to you, but I don't like that you've just made that comment. And actually, it's not okay. And it's not okay whether they're here or not. So, um, yeah, I I think it's, weirdly, it's a good thing that it happened because it created this conversation.
4: I I must say that I I was... It's anathema to me, I don't recognise that behaviour. I haven't been in the insurance industry all my life. I've I've mostly run my own things and and spent a lot of time in banking and I've I've seen sort of, you know, parallel behaviors, but not to that extent. Um but as as I always say as the co-founder of Two Girls, this is really, you know, disturbing for me as well. I wouldn't like to think that in any way that this world existed, but it does, unfortunately. Um and funnily enough, it, it was kind of brought home to me recently with, within our own company. And, you know, I built something that I want to work at because I can't work in corporates because I'm unemployable in a corporate. And part of that is, is, you know, values of respect. And I think the the one thing is, is genuinely lots of, lots of companies write their values down. And I'm sure, you know, Aviva and all of the people involved um, have all subscribed to company values, which say they will never do this. Um, but that's just because they're hollow. And I think in our instance, we, we very much. Live the values, and they're they're two they're two things which, which really, I guess, shocked me in a way in my own company. One was I've relatively recently employed a CFO who is a tiny, fiery brown woman, and um, when I was speaking to her about um, integrating into the sort of startup environment and um, just trying to understand behaviours around coming out of certain areas, and then she explained to me. Well, I've spent my whole life in, in investment banking and it's a sort of a very cut and thrust world. And, um, so therefore I've learned these techniques to, to sort of, um, to change, change dynamics. One is wear very large shoes, uh, and, and things like, and she's running through a list of defensive mechanisms that she sort of has developed over the years against that environment. And it's almost like, a, it was almost like, Having to go through a desensitization process with her to say it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't work like that. Yeah, we're not like that. Yeah, that's not these people. And, and, you know, working through, working through, um, what our culture means and, and really whether we stand by those values. And, but the one thing that was really shocking to me was an instance of an actual employee who had spent a long time in, in insurance, um, you know, uh, displaying behaviors. Um, along these lines and um you know we did ask the individual to leave the company based on the fact that those were not our values so yeah i, I think you know and I don't think it's just the industry quite frankly I, I and and the whole social media thing when i look at my kids they they're 14 and 17 and, and it's just horrible for them quite frankly um social media's made it worse um just the bullying and amongst peers not even you know not even on a, on a gendered basis uh so I think that there's – but quite frankly, the, the behaviours that were displayed there in those comments, to me, are total anathema. Um, I, I I know those people exist, but uh, it's it's also sad that they still exist.
2: It's definitely not just insurance. I mean, can I recommend a book which is out recently? So I've just finished The Authority Gap um, by Marianne Seeger. It's about why – why women are still taken less seriously than men and what we can do about it. And there is a lot of scientific evidence in there. It's a hugely academic book with a lot of research. And I think it's a fantastic book to read for anyone who is, especially who wants to be an ally here. Um, it was definitely described why it's it's prevalent in all sorts of industries. And the, what you just talked about, behaviours, talks about how all women have... Learned that there's certain things that you have to do because it's much harder. And right from the classroom, right from the fact that girls are expected to behave better in the classroom, they're expected to conform more, the fact that um, they're expected to take up less airtime than men, the fact that they're supposed to be, you can, that you're supposed to disagree less. Um, right to, you know, what you have to do in order to not be seen as a difficult, bossy woman. And yes, I mean, the shoes is one. I'm a six foot woman, so I've never had to wear the big shoes thing, but I still get the problem. So it's not all about hype. It's really interesting that she's taken that on herself. I, I think it's
4: sad, quite frankly, it really saddened me when I heard it. I had never thought about it and it actually just sat there and went, this is unreal that someone has to actually do that, quite frankly. I was quite taken aback.
1: Well, I mean, one thing I will say, and if you look, look to the actual LinkedIn post from Amanda, which obviously is public, the support on there is, as we've said, is is outstandingly uh, all in on Amanda and what she said. There's a lovely comment from Anne amongst, I think Sean and Charlie, you both commented as well, as, as many of us have. Anne Bowden, the CEO of Starling, wrote, did we think that when we started our careers in the city many years ago, that these attacks on senior women in business would still be happening in 2022, the difference being that in 2022, we are now prepared to call them out? And I think that's almost highlighted beautifully what we're saying here. The other thing I'll say, and this is almost to Charlotte's point about it being a good and a bad thing, it's never really a good thing, but who can remember what they were calling out the issues about? The answer is no one, because actually the issue at hand is the sexism and um, what they've called out here. And, and they've just put it on a pedestal for everyone to see. And to your point about the allies and the you know, the tens of thousands of people that have commented and shared and whatever else, it's it's amplified... The issue for everyone and brought it to the forefront. Unfortunately, in a horrible, unnecessary way. But I think it will probably support it more long term going forward as well.
0: Yeah, and and, and I mean the reasons the reasons why it was being called out certainly one of the comments <clears throat> was with regards to almost half of Aviva's board being women, <laughs> which is a fantastic achievement. And Amanda herself is the government's uh, woman in finance champion. You know, it's, <laughs> so there's a hell of a lot of positives in terms of what Aviva are doing and what she's doing herself. Um, But you're right, I I think the negative comments are terrible, but it's actually highlighted some of the uh, work that Aviva is doing. And I think uh, at the end of the forum when they voted, I think she got a 99.1% sort of approval rating. So it it just shows she's doing the right thing and she's leading that firm incredibly well. Uh, But there is... A long way to go. I mean, uh, just final comment um, only 7% of European listed companies are led by women. And in 2021, only eight organizations promoted women to the top roles. So definitely a long way to go. Um, but I think this just before you move
3: on, on, because I can feel you moving on, I wanted to just throw in a, a couple of remarks as well, having listened to every, everybody else. I mean, when I laughed, Charlotte, you know I laughed because when you said, yeah, of course, with that sort of incredulous, what kind of question is that, even though I know you need to ask it, John, right? But I think just a couple of things to you, Charlotte, I'm going to hopefully not make you blush, but Charlotte is one of those leaders who routinely calls stuff out, whether or not it's going to get headlines, whether or not she gets likes or comments or shares. This is my experience with you, Charlotte, I hope you don't mind me saying this, Um on 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 issues that just indicate wrong mindset, right? because what we're talking about here is these people are at the extreme end, whether they were doing it for effect or not, they are part of a, a spectrum that we're all familiar with. We've all we routinely see examples of where those embedded biases and and the cultural inheritance that we're living with still come to the fore, right. So Charlotte, hats off to you. I, I, I've, I think I've said this to you in other in other fora, but hats off to you for being being the change that you want to see. I think the point about allies is let's let's be positive about insurance as well. You know there are at least ten gender, ethnicity, and also neurodiversity um, community groups in insurance. I'm not saying job done, but what I am saying is those allies are, are gathering together and they're they're very vibrant networks and communities that are saying stuff, doing stuff, sharing stuff, educating as well. So we should let's on that optimism note um, that Charlotte brings to the fore, let's 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 think about that too. But I'm also gonna say the reason it really matters in insurance and financial services is because we're designing products and services that are actually embedding gender and ethnicity biases. I I say that, as I state that as a fact. I stand to be corrected or argued with. But separately, the responsibility for us, because of just how important what we are and what we're producing is to everyday life, the responsibility to make sure that we design out, we don't use bad data in the wrong way, automated with an inch of its life through AI and other um, what happens to data once it gets squirted into those systems I think there's a bigger there's a there's a more there's more responsibility there just as big tech shares that responsibility as well because our power to shape people's lives and and create really crap outcomes as well as really good outcomes is materially a lot larger than many other sectors so we're not I don't think we're doing as good a job on that actually. On that tech and data, let's engineer out the bias as a matter of urgency. Um, so yeah, along with the optimism is we've got a lot of power and a lot of accountability, and and let's see some more um, action on that from my point of view. No, no,
0: I think that's a really good wrap up. I think optimism is is a great one to finish on. But you're right, there is definitely more we can do. Moving on to the next news story, um, and we have Mark to help us with this one. So Level and Human partner to offer the first of its kind tailored electric vehicle insurance. So from the FinTech Finance News, Human, the real-time data-driven insurance provider for fleets, has announced a partnership with Level, the authorized reseller for fleet management and vehicle telematics provider, Geotab. The partnership will enable Human to have access to data from electric vehicles in real time. Human will gather the data on the driver behavior and miles driven recorded using the Geotab telematics devices in electric vehicles to then quote fleets based on how safe their drives and vehicles are. So Mark, huge congratulations on this new partnership and very exciting. Really the first
4: question is just,
0: how did all this come about? Can you tell us a little bit about this story?
4: Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, we've been, I've been running a strategy for, for a couple of years and if you look at, I didn't do the recap in the very beginning. So, so we're, a, we're a data company that's uh, built a, a commercial vehicle, MGA on top of that data company. And we were built data first, data native. And one of the one of the things that I always looked at was well, how do we get to market? And the routes to market um, in in our in our sector are very much agency led and intermediated. However, we've worked really hard at forming partnerships, um, which give us incremental routes to market or strengthen relationships within those distribution channels with brokers. So it's quite a nuanced sort of setup. But this also uh, the strategy also leads us on to. Moving to a future where we we have um, we have an insurance product embedded in a vehicle, and, and those are things that we're working really hard on. So with uh, with Level, we we've discovered joint goals in order to basically serve certain sectors of the fleet market. and um, with various telematic service providers, they'll tend to niche themselves into areas of of the fleet market. And as one of the bigger partners uh, that ensure rideshare drivers in in fleets, uh, particularly in London. Um, it made sense to us to partner with with Level and really focus on on the EV uh, segment within within those ride fleets. And uh, there's a lot of tailwinds, if you like, um a, a lot of big swirl in the ocean behind this. About to, sorry, I'm a surfer, so so that analogy always comes up about to form, you know, a really a really good wave to ride. And and that is the combination of of electrification of the fleets. So, you know. The, I don't have to reiterate the the drivers. There's um, there's the sustainability aspects. There there's um, there's the environmental and the decarbonisation aspects. But it's actually really hard, and there, there are many aspects of, of of electrification which are really hard, which are again well documented. Uh, much of it relating to charging infrastructure and the location of the charging infrastructure. And then a big challenge is, of course, insurance. Insurance for EVs is is hard as well. And uh, we have a lot of experience. We've had a lot of um, a hybrid through to um, EV insurance um, policies live. And we, we, we've been collecting a lot of data on EVs and it made a lot of sense for us to partner in this regard, get access to the data, and we're totally agnostic to the source. So this is yet another source to us. And, and we found a really strong partner um, with Level to partner with them. Um, uh, and to provide tailored, uh, tailored insurance policies um, around um, EV vehicles and EV fleets. Well, fantastic. So it, sounds,
0: it sounds great and congratulations on that partnership. I'm going to turn to the underwriter in the room um, <laughs> and just ask, why has electric vehicle insurance traditionally cost more? I think electric vehicle owners could pay up to 14% more is the average. And do you think that is prohibitive for customers switching to electric vehicles?
2: So the thing to remember about motor insurance, full stop, it's incredibly competitive sector. So it's always about following the data. So, you know, the, if there's a reason why things are more expensive, it will be because things are there. It's a lot of change in this sector, right? There's not been a huge amount of data. There's um, there's very long tails on motor insurance. So you, you haven't got the years and years of data here you have elsewhere. It's also in terms of, um, you know, the actual different types of perils that you can have um, for motor. So uh, whether, it's your accidental damage or your your property damage or your whatever, you know, you've got it's the actual costs of fixing those as well. I, I am sure as it becomes more prevalent, um, and as you can start buying things in more, in more bulk, then the cost will start coming down. But motor insurance full stop is incredibly competitive as a sector. So um, you know, people will follow the data and they will chase the customers. So I don't doubt that if costs start coming down that that sector will become very attractive for more players.
0: And Nigel, speaking about data, it'd be great to get your thoughts. I mean, it it always surprises me with regards to, you know, we're talking now about telematics, we're talking about real-time data. You know that's been around for almost what, five, ten years. Oh, longer always,
2: than that, or oh, <laughs> even longer, even longer. I don't know wasn't when it you did that first years? Uh, 20 years? Norwich, Norwich Union almost wasn't it twenty 30, years ago? I would say. The uh, the first, the one now. There I think they had their anniversary recently.
0: The thing that always surprises me is, you know, as insurers, that you want more accurate data, you want more real time data. Customers want their risk profiles to drop based on their driving, and yet it's still. I mean, it's becoming more commonplace in fleet, but you know. Why are we still today? Why is it not the prevalent way of insuring things, especially where we can get real-time data for things like motor cars? I mean, Nigel, it would be great to get your view.
1: There's a couple of points on this one for me. And actually, here's another example of where the pandemic opened people's eyes to paying for things that they didn't think they were using at any one point in time. And you get the rise of telematics or usage-based insurance, because if your car was sitting in your driveway for the best part of two years for the folks that weren't... Uh, working in an office or, or other location, they thought, well, why is that fair or not fair? So open people's minds up to alternative business models that are out there that have existed for the best part of 30 years per, per the comments a minute ago. The adoption's really interesting. It, there's lots of things out there that exist that are probably more suited to us, but we haven't had the inclination or desire to go investigate at any one time. I, my suspicion personally is that At some point, this will become the standard for everyone and the current model will will, uh, disappear entirely. Our next generation, when you think about car ownership or car access or even home ownership and home access will change so dramatically that people will choose a true utility-based model rather than um, the model that we have in place today. Now that said, it's not the right price for everyone. We've got to work out how insurance will, just understand how insurance works overall. So it's definitely not right for everyone. I remember getting a quote on UBI for myself many years ago, and it was almost double the price of the standard quote you get from an aggregator here in the UK. So you have to you have to understand what drives people no pun intended. And in insurance for auto, nine times out of ten, it's price. And then price price was a huge issue for young drivers. You'd go and spend three thousand pounds or thousand pounds on a a Vauxhall Nova or Astra, I'm showing my age here with a Nova, aren't I? With a a Vauxhall um, small car and end up paying three or four times that price on the insurance. So originally it came out to say, let's support young drivers and help them get in there and monitor what they're doing and put in curfews. And I think over the years, we've now got a whole host of behavioral data and insights that said, actually, this is applicable for everyone. My mum at 78-ish, um, is now on a UBI-style low mile policy with one of the, 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 the top um, providers in the UK. And it works a treat for her, Realises it helps her realise she drives so little entirely, and yet she's been accustomed to driving or signing up for 10,000 miles a year because that was the the average that people should do or the default option. And she actually drives, I think, about 2,000 miles a year. I think it's, I mean, it's interesting in terms of the product configurations
4: because there's so many different variations of of, of the product configuration. And really what, what we're touching on is, you know, a product that works for people who don't drive. And, you know, the challenge, and you don't really need a lot of data for that. You just need to know what the mileage is and that can be self-reported or harvested from, from a box. And that's a pretty simple, basic sort of proposition. Um, our proposition works with cars that never stop moving and And the thing you know the thing on price is you have to ask what drives price, and the thing that drives price is exposure at the end of the day. And the thing that drives exposure is not necessarily the driving behavior, particularly when you're getting into particularly high mileage components. So, What our platform does is actually we have a very sophisticated geospatial risk model which understands the risk of accidents per thousand miles for ground transportation in any aspect. So it's really about when, where, how you drive, which is about 35 to 40 percent of the price. Um, and then the uh, the driving behaviour itself, including fatigue, is is only about fifteen percent of the price that we make up. Mm. and And that's the key thing about using data, really leveraging the data to understand the exposure. That's really what you're trying to do. You're not trying to understand whether someone brakes harshly or they park uh, their car for three weeks at a time. You're just trying to understand um, given given the exposure or because insurance is a risk transfer transaction. And, you know, that's what premiums are. They're an agreement for a small amount of money to pay out a large amount of money in a bad case. What is that exposure? And, and so effectively, modeling exposure is what you get from using the data. And it's, it's that is the key thing to bear in mind here. And there are so many variations and combinations of, 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 of these different products that suit different, um, I guess, different use cases, if you could look at them like that.
0: I think for me, you're right. I think having the additional data, the greatest benefit of that is being able to offer multiple or differentiated products and services or propositions that actually now we we can cater to a whole different variety of customers in different ways with that data, which I think is fabulous.
2: It's the risk reward, basically. Why is it that UBI is not for everyone? Because it costs a lot, increases the expense ratio a lot. And because pricing is really, really sophisticated already, you already have a lot of proxies for that data. So the question is, what extra does this extra cost of data actually give you for understanding And and
0: that's it. It's the the value exchange. Is there a beneficial value exchange to both parties?
3: A great articulation of your value proposition, though, um, in a way, Mark, that is not done in the consumer world. I think the fleet application is brilliant. And the way you've explained it is exactly what needs to happen. Just a question about data portability in a world of open finance and open life down
4: the line. But. Will, I'll pass you on to my DPO and my chief data scientist and they will, they will, they will happily answer those questions. As a closing note, if you'd like to know, learn more about telematics,
0: head over to our 11FS YouTube channel as we've recently published Explorer videos on this very topic. We're going to take a very quick break and we will be back very soon.
4: Here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services and our team is growing quickly. So, we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or somebody you know are up for a challenge and fancy working for one of Flex's most flexible companies, come check out our open roles. We have roles in growth, product, sales, talent, and more. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. That's 11 forward slash careers.
1: All right, welcome back. Let's get on with the show. So, our next story is the UK and EU hit Russian oil cargoes with an insurance ban. Uh, this is from the Financial Times. The UK and the EU have agreed a coordinated ban on insuring ships carrying Russian oil. This will shut Moscow out of the vital Lloyds of London insurance market and sharply curb its ability to export crude, according to the British and European officials. The insurance ban is part of the new European sanctions package targeting Russian oil exports. Uh, Brussels agreed an embargo in most Russian oil shipments, but the involvement of the UK has unlocked the important insurance ban. This could have been much broader consequences for Moscow's exports and leave it looking for insurance in smaller, less developed markets. I know we've discussed uh, the horrible situation that's going on um, right now in uh, Ukraine and Russia before, um, Sean, let me start with you. How important is this for the insurance industry taking a stand?
3: Well, I think it it was inevitable, right? Now, that that's a different um, judgment call, isn't it? Is it important? Well, yes, uh, for a variety of reasons, not least because basically it was required as part of a coordinated response um, that covers regulation, legalities, all the rest of it, right, quite apart from, from what we do as a sector. So the important bit, I I guess, Nigel, for me, again, you won't be surprised to to hear me referring to insurance's pivotal role in society and the economy. We're much more important. And actually that understanding of how important what we do is. Is a situation in the 2020s that I think most people who've been in insurance or studied insurance for a while are still trying to get their heads around because we're so used to having to justify why we're so important or explain why it's okay to work for an insurance business. So, yes, it was important. It was because it was required. Is it a harbinger of things to come, the whole situation? So I don't want to minimise and get remotely flippant about what that means to ordinary people Across the world, what this war means, not just to the, the people in the Ukraine, but everybody else as we're reading about supply chain shocks, energy shocks, you know it's not something to laugh about or be flippant about. But on the other hand, what I think this shows us is that the whole world, and therefore the financial, global system and everybody playing in it and relying on it, is going to have to get used to having to make big principal calls. We're not used to that. We're really not. And so I think, you know, the whole issue to back to what to what Mark was talking about with regard to purpose and values. And is it marketing or is it operationalized? Is it real? I think, yeah, this is another, again, not remotely minimizing the impacts and, and the awfulness of what's happening. But I think it is. Yeah, it's a brilliant example, isn't it? Of what happens when You have to make a call. Is this okay? No. Is it going to be deeply inconvenient? Yes. But do we have to do it anyway? Well, yeah, we do, actually, for all sorts of economic, social, but also purpose-driven reasons.
1: It's a really interesting point. I was actually thinking about you yesterday because I was talking about ESG, which I know is very close to your heart. And one of the things that came out was the war has almost stopped or hindered many of people's ESG efforts, given they've now had to seek sources elsewhere for food or supply chain or coal, whether it's an excuse or or, or otherwise. It did remind me of our conversation a number of weeks back on a, on a previous show, but it has had knock-on impacts elsewhere. I guess it leads me to the second question. Maybe, um, Charlotte, starting with you, I mean, how has this impacted the marine industry? I know it's nothing to do with pets whatsoever, um, but what's your take on how it's affected on or, or, or the marine industry more broadly?
2: I think my take on, on this section is, more more broadly, obviously, it's an incredibly tragic situation. Um, I think what insurance can do to take strong stands and how it can help support a better world is a really important debate to, to be had here. So I suppose opening the question up a bit more broadly than Marine, it's saying that uh, insurance is the great enabler it's what enables business to function it's what allows people to live the lives they want to live it actually has a really proud history of supporting doing the right thing in disasters in encouraging safety measures in you know making sure that planes have those safety measures before they take off or that you know workers are given um, fair and safe environments in order for that building to be built. It has a really good history of um, social good. And I think that perhaps we could look at the next stage of that as well, whether it comes to all ESG issues. How should we be taking a leadership and saying, if you want to operate your business. These are the parameters that we expect. We you know, we expect that within underwriting that you operate in a certain way. And so we're going to fold ESG into that as well. I think it creates some interesting moral debates because who makes those decisions? Who decides what is the right thing to do here? But insurance can do it. Insurance is such a foundation for everything.
1: You, you and I are both aligned on this one. There's been, there's been some very interesting stories over the last 12 months or so. We saw that Elgin dropped AIG for something similar to this um, on ESG efforts. We saw just last week a German CEO investment banker uh, was let go for greenwashing. It was reported in the news uh, and so much more. Uh, Mark, maybe one for you. I mean, sanctions and sanction checks are new to our industry. They're at the forefront of everything that we do day in, day out. We've dealt with them for years with the Iranian oil crisis and cargoes before, one of the challenges came up with this previously was mentioned was the complication here is understanding if it's Russian oil to begin with, uh, number one. And then number two, that also noted that Russian ports are also used as a conduit from oil from Kazakhstan, which is not under sanction. So how hard will this to be actually to implement? We're not like a, we're not like a blockchain thing where we can work out its origin of source from day one or whatever else. It's not that simple, <laughs> I'm afraid. Why do take there? And I don't think
4: that the blockchain isn't the answer Darn to it. everything. I think you know it's it's an incredibly intractable problem. Quite frankly, that's how I see it. Um, you know, ship to ship transfers at sea, ships going dark. It's more than that. There's so many different ways. You've seen cargoes pitch up, which have been mixed. So literally, that they're you know they've been traces uh, traced back to uh, mixed cargoes uh, with with um, whatever grade I forget, which of 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 Russian Creed. Or the other thing that's happening is, is third-order products such as petroleum and refined products uh, being exported instead of the instead of the raw. So you know it's almost intractable if you think about it. I think that the more walls go up, um, uh, act as deterrence, then creative ways get found to go around them, and it isn't you know the the. Uh, I think if you if you think of them as the perpetrators, they're not just going to go, oh, that's okay. I'm just going to shout at you and I'm going to try and push my ship down the road. They'll just find other ways of doing it. And this is literally what's happening. So, you know, it's it's transit pipelines. How do you well, how do you do a transit pipelines? That's a fairly easy one because it's all metered, it's all controlled. I think you know the insidious ones are third order refined products, um, ship to ship transfers at sea, uh, things like that, which are which are generally hard to pick up in in real time. Um, I mean, even if you, you know, it would, it would be a flight of fantasy to say, well, we just fly satellites over Then you know, we fly satellites over, we can see what's going on. Cloud cover changes things. Um, you don't always see the ships. Um, beaconing changes things because they don't always obey what they should. So ships go dark very quickly uh, and they stay dark for a very long time. You only have to look at what Efforts are being made to track down the yachts of oligarchs and such like, and then they just disappear and then they pop up somewhere and no one knows what's happened in between and This is not something that's just suddenly started happening now. this has been uh, going you know there there are uh players, actors if you like, who are very well practiced in circumventing sanctions. I myself come from a country that was sanctioned for very many years um you know I, I think uh, it's it's it isn't the topic for this and it's hard hard to understand how how there were white people who were also sanctioned and went to jail and such like. Unfortunately, I think in terms of history, my family's on that side, but nonetheless, uh, sanctions busting, be it weapons, uh, any sanctioned goods is, is, is a huge industry and it's all underground. So it's almost impossible to say throwing up some form of uh, first order sanction, um, will solve the problem that just, um, sort of puts a block in place. And, um, and, and then, and, and I think that the final point is, it's all post fact, so you can only literally trace it back after the cargo has been delivered, after the products have been sold, and then they're out there, they're in the market. So it's it's almost intractable, if you like. That's why I see it as intractable.
1: If the Iranian sanctions anything to go by, that's been in place for almost a decade now already. Um, so so we have history in knowing what to do. I think back to the earlier point about EVs and everything else. We're squeezing the the already short resources in place and accelerating other things, again, no pun intended against driving and, and electric, but we are accelerating things forward in, in in other ways.
3: So data specialists, marine data specialists like Inshore Wave and Consirus, I should know this, shouldn't I? I'm just wondering whether we're aware of of how they're responding to this new data requirement basically isn't it and from an operational resilience perspective that's my question my brief comment is is quite optimistic in a way because i think there's a massive industry that's growing now in sources of data metrics and, and accompanying analysis and risk management right so where there's an where there's a risk we're really really good as a sector and enabled by fintech and, and technologists and data to find new ways to measure what was previously the unmeasurable in real time as well and and, and i compare this to the way you described it um mark i compare this to, to money laundering and anti-money laundering so i don't know if you're familiar with some a uh, company called comply advantage but it seems to me from the outside in i'm not paid by them i don't know the inside i've never been a client of them but from the inside outside in there that's a really good sort of almost kind of uh use case for yeah it's as difficult to track this stuff these and sanctions related am aml as well but maybe you know there's there's a potential for uh new businesses and new metrics and data providers actually coming up on the rails to actually be able to help us address this but again in wave con nigel yeah have you heard anything yeah
1: so so actually, it's a it's a good shout. And Andy and team over Consilis are, are good friends. If you head over to the consumers website, you will find a report they published back in March uh, that highlights some of the risks for this number one. And then there was a regular dashboard that they update that has the um, the risks in the area specifically in the Black Sea um, and the sum insured and what was that risk at any one point in time. So they are actually monitoring on a, on a I am going to say near real-time basis. I think they've got 25 marine customers, if not more, already in that space. So it's, as you said, it's their bread and butter. So really, really important to them. And they've got some good insights um, from that. I'm sure InsureWave have similar, I've not checked, but I did see the uh, the Concierge report go out with James uh, some time back. So, but but great shout out, again, leveraging data. It always amazed me when I first met Concierge, people didn't actually know what was on the ships or where they were. How could you lose that? It's not exactly small. Very easy. The ocean's large. (laughs) That's very true. That's very true. Let's uh, move on. That's it for me. John, back to you.
0: All right now. Well, thank you, Nigel. And time for the final story of the week. uh, 1952 insurance policies when the Queen came to the throne. So from the actuarial post, to mark the platinum jubilee, Aviva has looked back to 1952 to see how insurance has evolved since Queen Elizabeth II came to the throne. While many core features have remained the same, records from the archives provide insight into the changing face of homes, hobbies, vehicles and holidays over the last seven decades. Aviva documents show comprehensive household insurance offer protection against events still seen today, such as fire, burglary, and storm, although some of the 1952 policy wordings has fallen out of favour, including Thunderbolt, Larceny, and Tempest. Discussion points, I guess. Um, the first is bring back golf insurance. So golf insurance... In- enabled people to claim for loss on damage of not exceeding £50, equivalent to £1,500 in today for golf clubs and banks. It also provided cover for clubs broken while practising an accidental injury. I'm gonna open it up to the panel. Which hobby would you like to see given a tailored insurance option? We'll start with you, Charlotte.
2: Um it's got I've got to link it around pets, really. Um maybe we'll go for a, you know, like dog agility or something. <laughs>
3: that would be pretty great, wouldn't it?
0: Dog agility. Sean, how about yourself?
3: Do you know what? I'm really sorry. I I I just can't think of anything that I would say you do this as a hobby that you should spend money to get insured on. Uh, that isn't already insured. I'm really sorry, John, I've epic failed, but I, I actually can't think of anything. No, I mean, you can, you can pretty um, much sorry. get
0: insurance for anything these days, you know, whether it be your dancing legs like Michael Flattery or whether it be your boobs. Or Nigel Wolf. N-
1: n- well, Nigel, which <laughs> Nigel body parts do you have insured?
3: Do you have any body parts insured, Nigel? I, That's the question I, the nation wants I, to have the I answer c- to. I can
1: safely confirm none of my body is worth insuring. How's that? It's all broken. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: Is it the fifty quid
2: like the golf clubs? In well, 1952? It's, 50 quid, it's fifty quid in gold money,
1: and as I'm such an old man, it's like fifteen hundred quid now. Broken during practice, I, I think that that definitely qualifies <gasps> to break.
3: Oh my god! I've just had an image of Nigel insuring his platform shoes so that when he goes out and does his John Travolta, Saturday Night Fever yeah. secretly, there you go. yeah. But if he falls over, he's insured. Yeah, brilliant. I'm, I'm
4: thinking I I have one. I think I'm thinking ice driving, but on public roads. I was watching something, uh, to, to stop the monkey chatter in my head the other day as I need to do. And, um, it was, uh. Maybe you should
1: insure against that one.
4: <laughs> this is an uninsurable proposition. You can't quantify the exposure. Um, it, it's, it's actually, a, I mean, the, the, yeah, whatever. I, I won't tell you about the other stuff. The, the one thing is it's Europe from above, which is quite interesting. This is just normal things, but from a drone. And one of them was uh, was an ice driving track somewhere in I think the valley in Switzerland where farmer floods his field in the autumn and then and then all the oh no it was it was in Italy there you go obviously because it was near near um, near the supercar placey thing where they build all those cars and uh, and they have this ice driving track and then all the supercar. Um, manufacturers get to take people for a, for a day out to see if they can keep them in one piece. Now, I was thinking that, but on public roads, that, that would be something to definitely insure.
1: I have to admit, I think I watched that on CNN when I was traveling once, where they had these Lamborghinis yeah. traveling on ice tracks as part of the yeah. experience. I yeah. am, this, reminds, this whole thing reminds me of a long Came Polly, which is a terrible, great movie, uh, where Ben's is it Ben Stiller and Jennifer Aniston all chasing, chasing around each other, which is fantastic. Anyway, it's good fun. My, my insurance policy, Are You Ready?, I would like to insure against stupidity in IVRs and time-wasting contact centers that ask you stupid questions. The amount of times I've been asked for something that I don't have or I'm coined to help out with, or that I've said to an IVR that didn't understand me, I want that time back in my life. I don't want to speak to your broken process, please.
4: It sounds to me like you need a time machine rather than insurance, Nigel. <laughs> it sounds like there's a, <laughs> there's a lot way? of solutions that I need to Which I way? Want. Going forward or back though, I'm not sure which one that is. <laughs> yes. Right. Your yes.
2: choice. Combs. And a p- final
0: question. This this will show who has read the show notes. Um how much is it to ensure the crown jewels? Once well, again, we'll start with you, Charlotte.
2: Oh, I haven't read the show notes. <laughs>
0: Good. How much Good. Good. do we tell us the other? How much to ensure the crown jewels? I'd,
2: I will say, um, I I don't know, but I am currently reading the biography of Colonel Blood, who was the last person who nearly successfully stole the Crown Jewels, and it's a brilliant story. So that's my second book uh recommendation of the show. Uh Colonel Blood, what a great name. This is a great name. Uh, this was a long time. He it's he striking. ended up in front of the, the king and then turned and became one of the king's spies if they made a movie of it you'd think it wasn't true history's got all the best stories so uh i don't know how much it is to insure but go go find out about colonel blood
1: i don't know how to top that one another <laughs> plug the, the answer is they're uninsurable no one really oh, knows. Um, well done
3: i knew that too but i controlled myself i can't Nigel. control myself <laughs>
0: You, you didn't put your hand up, Nigel. Sean had a hand up. So, yes, I, I did it. Now you did it. Well, so the answer is they are uninsurable. So, if they get stolen. That's it. Um, I guess, well, they would probably come back to the taxpayer eventually. Well, that as well. Anyway.
2: <laughs> they're also not the original crown jewels, Yay! are they? They're not the original crown jewels. The original ones were melted
3: down. So this is, they, they're actually replicas. And we stole yeah. them in the first place, didn't we, Charlotte? Don't you think? We stole them, by the way, from other people in the first place. So,
1: this is taking a very different turn. This is be the history channel now. I'm going
0: to call time on this debate before we go into all sorts of dark places. The (laughs) reparations committee
4: will assemble shortly hereafter.
0: (laughs) That wraps up the news for this time. Where can our listeners
3: find out more about you, Charlotte? Minipets.com or come find me on LinkedIn. Sean? Uh, LinkedIn and uh, greenkiteassociates.com.
4: Brilliant. Mark? Human.ai, LinkedIn, and you can also come and see us at the DIA, the Digital Insurance Agenda, uh, on the 30th of of June in Amsterdam.
0: Oh, fantastic. And final, I don't think I've got tickets to that one. And sort (laughs) your Oh, please, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Uh, And finally, yourself, Nigel.
1: I I think after this discussion, the Tower of London, to be honest. Um, But... (laughs) You'll find me on Twitter at Nigel Walsh. And
0: you can find me, John Bean, at 11FS or on LinkedIn. So a big thank you to all my guests. It was a fun show today. Uh, Thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps to make us better and helps others to find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, you can find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Insider. Or you can find us on Twitter at Instech Insiders or email podcasts at 11FS.com. And a big thank you very much and goodbye from myself and all our guests.